to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about creating a life that doesn't suck. We talk about creativity, work, and community, and the balance between the three. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Thanks for joining me. Every couple of weeks, I do a review where I talk a little bit about the guests that came, some key takeaways from chatting with them and our discussions. It's a lot about what has stayed with me, especially because in some cases, I've recorded the talks with them you know, a month or two before. And some of the stuff has just been so vital to going on that I feel like it's worth telling other people that some of the stuff might really help them in the long run, might help us all in the long run. And then I also do a book review, which is why it's also called a review review. And I also do a review of my open tabs on my laptop, which is a way of knowing where my head is at at any given time. Thanks for joining. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Tony Noons about courageous management. This is really dear to my heart. I am writing a book that has to do with courageous management. I actually end up, may end up doing two books back to back on it because some of this stuff just is so much that it should be in its own book. Gallup polling organization has been doing employee satisfaction surveys for a bunch of years now, and they're finding that over three quarters of workers in the world are disengaged at work. And a huge proportion of those actively hate going to work. And this is such a waste. It's a waste of potential and it's just an oversaturation of human misery. And one of the things Tony said that I thought was brilliant, if you are a manager and you think, you point at someone else and you think they're a C player, then you are at best a B player because an A player would see that person and know what they needed to do to move forward or at least start questioning them and listening to them and finding out what they need. In other words, if you're blaming and shaming, then you are not managing. You're bossing, but you're not managing. And if managing means accomplishing a goal, you're not doing that either. Tony always asks his people, like the people that are working for him, when you wake up in the morning and the alarm goes off and you're still in bed and you've got to go to work that day, what is your first thought that makes you think, I don't want to go. I just want to stay home. I want to hit snooze. Maybe I should just not go in. And that's a very, very important question. That is a question almost no one has ever asked. But if you can't solve what makes people not even want to come to work in the day. That's got to be the most basic thing. Now, from above, because power tends to be blinding, managers and management tend to make the assumption that it's a paycheck. It's the only reason you're there. But that is not how human work humans work. It's not just a paycheck. In other words, if it was just a paycheck, a lot of us, I mean, if it was just a paycheck, you'd be doing, you'd be dealing drugs. Mafia makes huge paychecks, but you don't do it because maybe it's against your moral values or maybe you're afraid of going to jail. In other words, it's not about the paycheck alone. The paycheck is not unimportant, but boy, you ask yourself every morning, is this even worth my paycheck? That is a dire place for an employer to be. And it's amazing how many employers do not recognize how dire that place is for them. And in fact, double down on it. So 
So Tony asked, what if management all started in that place? Like, what if the minute you meet your subordinates, that's what you talk to them about? The problem is it does put you in a catch-22 because management is always, and organizations are still, humans with compounded human biases, including a dislike of unpleasantness and of taking full responsibility. So... If the values that come down from the very top of the organization don't go through the organization, or if those values aren't fully humanist, then it devolves on individuals, brave individuals in the middle to resist poor management above in order to provide excellent management below. And this is a lot to ask of an individual, a lot of stress, and quite honestly, not compensated. This is pretty much not compensated. So even that metric of saying, oh, well, they're getting their paycheck isn't really true if they're not getting paid for the extraordinary weight that they have to carry. Poor skills top down and the abdication of values from the top sap the energy and contentment of those below. And despite an organization's endless boosterism of productivity, in fact, despite social boosterism of productivity, anybody that's in the middle that resists and protects their subordinates will get the full brunt of it. And one of the things that Tony observed that I really laughed about and then could not find any fault in is where do we learn how to manage people? Where do we learn what bosses are like? And the answer is television. And for a huge number of us in management, it's the Jetsons. Think about that. Think about an entire society run by spacely sprockets. When do we ever really take the time to teach leadership, real leadership, the real taking of responsibility, the real doing the bad stuff, doing the being the where the buck stops, hearing the pain of something and really making changes often to ourselves so that everybody is in a better place. I mean, we really don't. We, it's, it really becomes all about bossing, clocking out, in, clocking out, and then dying. That's pretty much it. So when that's your actual model, the Gallup numbers are not a surprise. Tony's creative work begins in acting and storytelling, but he's expanded it to be part of how he works as well, and he uses his acting skills for better connection. He's also expanded the concept of problem solving to be one that feeds his creativity. But the thing that really keeps him up at night is a duty of care to animals. He has a, a huge soft spot for that, and to speak for those who, for whatever reason, aren't able to speak for themselves, either because of power dynamics or because literally they can't speak. And he is a tireless worker for humane animal treatment and kindness and will go to extraordinary lengths to ensure it. Some key takeaways from talking with Tony were try using embarrassing stories when you want to connect with people, tell your own and ask other people something that they're horrible at. And I asked him and he is horrible at figuring out how much things are when they're on sale. He is really, really, really bad at it. (laughs) Um, Speak out, speak up for those who can't, whether they are human or not. If you have an ability to speak, if you have a position to speak, you have a duty to speak. If you can do something to make the world better, do it. And that is the exact same thing going on there. If you can, if you're in a position to do it. In fact, even if you're not in a position to, a lot of times that's just a limiting belief that you have. 
If you are think you're only good at one thing, you're unnecessarily limiting yourself. You have other gifts and you have gifts and you have to appreciate them before anybody else will. You can't go around being, and, and I know this from personal experience, you can't go around being something great and expecting that other people will validate you for it if you don't validate yourself first. When you're in a tense situation, ask yourself, how can I make this interesting? That was a really fun result of uh, Tony's acting training was, how can I make this interesting? And in fact, uh, the next one is let people who are difficult talk it out until they hang themselves. Be patient and keep asking questions because that makes it interesting. And then this one was an interesting one. If if your business is going to pay for a consultant, but won't pay to listen to people that are actually doing the work and won't pay the people actually doing the work. In other words, if they're paying, a, you know, he had an example of a consultant who was getting $1,000 a day, but the employees on the ground were not being compensated well and were saying what the problems were. Well, you already know the answer. I mean, pay them some more and listen to them. And, you know, I suppose you can use a consultant for some change management. There are some things that consultants are useful for, but to have them come in to tell you what your employees are telling you and you should be listening to, that is not an effective use of a consultant. You already have the answer to your problem right there. Next, I had Pam Victor, who has created a whole new footprint of improv in a place nobody ever bothered with, with an audience nobody ever bothered with, and performers nobody bothered with. Common sense says that comedy belongs in big cities and that you have to start when you're young. That is the comedy framework. The only old comedians you see are people who started when they were young and had a slow trajectory. You never hear of people beginning comedy and taking off when they're older, but they are wanting to do that. People who are older would love to do new things. And we live for much longer than we used to. So this is only becoming more important. And women are starting to see their own value in society and say, wait a minute, my kids being adults doesn't mean that I have to be, you know, only live to be a grandmother and then get committed to a nursing home and die. That is not the only next act of my life. I have life left and I should be able to do something fun with it. Everybody is seeking joy in their lives, wherever they are, however old they are. So Happier Valley serves it up through personal development and professional development programs. She had some great insights on fear, calling it selfish because it stops us from being of service. Fear is entirely in our own heads, and that's where we have to deal with it. It is not external. It is not something other people put on us. And we're afraid of bad things happening, but those are the very things that we learn from, those bad things. And fear, which has a natural sort of uh, use to it, that uh, her example was great. Her example was of a saber-toothed tiger. We're all descendants of the people who ran away from saber-toothed tigers because the ones who ran toward it yelling kitty were the ones that got eaten. So it has a use, but our fear gets supercharged from this inner critic. And it's vicious. It's both trying to protect us. And in doing that protection goes so big that it undermines us. Pam teaches a way to counteract that voice by 
acknowledging it, not even running away from it, but saying, thank you. Thank you for protecting me. Now shut up. Pam said the coolest thing about how things have turned out with her business and her life is that she gets to do things the way she wants. There's now a thriving community of middle-aged people and middle-aged women doing improv in rural Western Massachusetts and pretty much nowhere else except city. Well, nowhere else because the cities have the comedy troops, but the comedy troops don't serve that population. Happier Valley is serving a hungry, underserved population and making it a lot happier. Some key takeaways from Pam are every audition, and you should audition, should be a workshop to learn from. And the reason you should audition is because it gets you used to doing something that is a fearful thing and either leading you to what you wanted to do or some lessons that are good to learn from. Address your choices through your values. In other words, when you want to make a choice, when you want to make a decision, ask yourself, does this bring joy and ease? And the next one I loved was if it doesn't bring joy and ease, like if it can't bring joy and ease, does it at least bring you peace? And Pam's underlying conviction behind everything she does is that improv just solves everything. It just does. Victoria Quine, who is another guest like Pam, who has more of the overlap in work, community, and creativity, talked about the educational philosophy of circus that she has developed, having been an academic circus practitioner and now a practical circus practitioner and aspiring to go back and combine more academics back in. She creates a framework where the philosophy is that everybody can learn and everybody can explore with a kind of instructional scaffolding or with parameters. She's especially interested in interpersonal skills as a learning tool, which has to start with the concept that everyone is valuable, whether they're new or seasoned. Somebody who's new to this skill, to this moment right here, brings with them valuable information from all the other things they've done. And everybody has that value, regardless of how old or young they are, regardless of what they've done. And everyone can help another person. Victoria developed this framework through something called social circus. She taught at-risk kids in an inner city environment how to cooperate and to learn acrobatics and juggling and trust. And the idea of teaching other people trust is something we do not spend nearly enough time on or value nearly enough. One of the big questions everyone always has about circus is about safety. And Victoria doesn't just let that question rest there. She doesn't just react or respond or just answer that question. Instead, she delves very deep into the line between safety and this idea of perceived safety. Because fear is so often behind the question in the first place, this is an important point, a lot of her work takes place in the space where safety is in place, but the students' perceptions of that safety are wildly inaccurate due to the fear that they have. In order for them to learn, Victoria has to be present with them as they confront that fear and recognize that their perception has become untethered from their ability. And she's working with people who are terrified of heights, and they're on a trapeze. That's a huge step. And having gotten there, need to work through it to continue. 
Some key takeaways from Victoria are what you do matters, but it's not going to ruin anyone's life. Like it's important to get your own fear under control. It's important to get some perspective on your own stuff. Like, you know, we, we tend to focus very, very hard on what we do and we're sure that it is the be all end all. But for most of us and for most of us, most of the time, it is not a life and death situation. For some people, some of the time it is. But statistically, it matters, but it's not going to ruin someone's life. Also, people fall down, and that's okay. We're, we're designed for a certain amount of falling down. Again, a select number of people under a very select number of circumstances, it might be a bad thing, but for the vast majority of us, the vast majority of the time, we're going to learn something from a little bump, from falling down, from trying something. We're going to get better at it. Also, and this was a really interesting thing that came up towards the end of, of the podcast, just kind of a shout out to people who do this kind of around the edges work. The hustle life is real and nobody's found a solution. So these people that are really dedicated to their craft and really dedicated to this important work of cultivating trust, of cultivating courage, a lot of times they're barely making it themselves. Talk about the paycheck. They're not they're not paycheck motivated, except that they would really love to be able to make rent. So nobody has found a solution. It's worth thinking about. It's especially worth thinking about in the arts, where the arts really make life worthwhile. And there isn't a solution. But the more people that think about one, the more people that value it, the better off we'll be. And then also from Victoria was learn to ask. So one of the things she learned to do with uh, her work with at-risk kids was learn to ask first her advisor in college for help, thinking that she just was not up to this job. And her advisor also advised her learn to ask. And she learned to ask other people to help her, learned to ask for more support. And you have to do that. It's very difficult and it's very definitely goes into the fear factor, but it's also a fear of rejection. And chances are, sometimes if you ask, you won't always get the answer that you wished for. So keep asking. Have have faith that somebody's refusal is not a referendum on you. It's either their own agenda, stuff they have to deal with, or their honesty, they simply can't take it on. So keep asking. All right. Then for my book review, I want to review a book came out a couple years ago called You're a Badass by Jen Sincero. It is a motivational book. It doesn't say anything new particularly, but boy, it's fun. It's irreverent. It's cheerleading. It's positive thinking, which gets a bad pushback. But honestly, all we get from the internet, from media, from politicians is a garbage diet of depressing doom. And it reinforces what we're already saying to ourselves about ourselves. We've gotten these messages nonstop. And the problem with those messages, it's not that you have to be perky. It's not that you can't be depressed or feel your feelings. It's not that you have to put an overlay of positive to everything. It's that if you can't even get your head out of your posterior, how can you help someone else? Severely depressed people are a group that needs help from people, but they're not able to give much help to people. So rather than making all of us 
severely depressed and unable to help others or ourselves. We need to remember that that population is there and assist them. But if we are not, in fact, suffering from mental illness, we need to stop wallowing around in that space, unable to help others because it is sort of the dominant social paradigm now is to be more depressed than the next person, even if you're not actually suffering from depression. I think that's really what it is. It's almost it's almost like faking being in a wheelchair to get to the front of the line in Disney. It's not great, and it's not going to make you a better person to join people who really are suffering and pretend on top of it that you are really suffering the same, when in fact, you are not and simply have bought into a very dark mindset that, frankly, makes you somebody who will buy stuff. People who feel bad about themselves are great consumers, which is why it's such a valuable message for television and internet to have you do. So in any case, if you don't like your life, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. If you are severely depressed or have a mental illness, let me just put this caveat out there first. You know, try your best to get help. Ask for help and keep asking for help and try to get help. And this book is not for you. And that's okay. Not every book is for every person. It's not for you right now. You have other illnesses. Honestly, I one of the reasons I don't understand the pushback is this. If you've broken your leg, don't read a book about training for the marathon right now. Or read it knowing you'll get there, but don't feel bad about it. Don't use it as one more thing to feel bad about. That's that's absurd. That's that's not healthy. But if you haven't broken your leg and you don't need to see a doctor immediately because you haven't broken your leg, then maybe look at training for a marathon. Maybe look at moving more. So if you want to change your life, if your life is not satisfactory to you, it's time to create it instead of always giving yourself a pass and an excuse by pretending you can't have it. So the book is split up into five sections. There's, you have to do things you've never done and make a difference in the world. Embrace your inner badass. How to tap into the mother load. How to get over your BS already. And how to kick some ass. It is a fun, fun book. So in the first section, there's a little bit of, uh, a little bit of history. How you got this way. So it was your subconscious, and it's not your fault that you got here, but if you stay here, it is your fault because your unexamined beliefs are in charge of your life. Energy, thoughts, and vibration, thoughts turn into things eventually, and your faith has to be greater than your fear. Again, none of this is new, but it is a fun read and easy to access. I love this one. Uh, This is a Lao Tzu quote. The past is depressed. The future is anxiety but the present is peace. So that's kind of a Zen thing about being more aware of yourself in the present. Stop constantly obsessing about the past or the future because neither of those actually exist. Both of those are fictions. The only non-fictional space is right now, right where you are. And dogs are really in the moment. So be like a dog. The life you want is now. So spend time in the moment and have faith in the life that you want. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that until you're sort of comfortable with yourself, like if you're always in a yearning place, if you're always in a place of it's never enough, I'm not enough, I'm not where I want to be, then you really aren't in the present. If you can, you know what, it's back to RuPaul. If you 
can't love yourself, who can you love? So spend some time being with yourself and being okay with yourself because being okay with yourself opens up the space to be able to change how you think about the world. And a lot of this feeds into imposter syndrome, which is absolutely endemic right now, which is people going along and doing things that they don't feel like they are qualified to do. Some of them may not be, but they're not getting qualified. They're just afraid of being found out. Embrace your inner inner badass is to love the one you're with, RuPaul again. And we are trained out of this. When we're babies, we absolutely are fine with ourselves. And instead, as over time to socialize us, you know, a a fair amount of socialization is uh, toxic, is is anti-human, is unkind and destructive. A fair amount is to learn consideration for others. But it's pretty, I'm going to say it's unequally weighed. I'm going to say that there are ways to teach children how to be considerate of others without robbing them of the ability to be considerate to themselves. And we have not mastered that knack as a society for sure. Do things that you love, enjoy your life, stop settling for mediocrity, and understand that our thoughts, what we think about is what we talk about. And when we talk about it enough, either inside or to others, we start believing it. And when we believe it, we act in ways that are aligned with those beliefs. And then if we do enough of the actions, we have a habit and the habit becomes our reality. So if you think about that with eating, if you think this donut will make me feel better and you say it to yourself, this donut will make me feel better, or I always love to eat donuts, say it enough and it becomes a belief about donuts make me feel better. So I went and got a donut and I did it every day and then I had a problem with my weight because of all the donuts. That is how that plays out. And it plays out the other way too. If you look at athletes who have really excelled, they are wrenching themselves into the opposite way, right? So my thought is that I can really, really, really buckle down. I'll be able to win my next race. You know, a lot of them are like aiming for the Olympics, but the ones that really make it, that's a very... That's a very far goal. It's sort of an underlying goal. But what they really want to do is make it to the next thing that they're doing. So they think about it. They think about strategies. They think how to do it. They talk to other people. They listen to other people. So it turns in the words. Eventually, they believe that they're able to do it. And they try a bunch of times. And those become actions. The actions become habits running every day. And then eventually, it becomes reality, which is to keep trying to win that race. And The funny thing about this kind of thought process is that it pulls skepticism out of a lot of people. And I have to say, totally including me. But it becomes skepticism where it's like, yeah, but I'm looking at one person who didn't. Yeah, but you're not looking at all the people who did. And because a small proportion of people don't, I'm not going to blame them for not doing it. I'm going to suggest that either they had something sort of self-undermining, but I know not everybody can win every race. But the fact is, did you learn anything? Maybe you learn from the race that your place in the world, that where you really are happy is being a coach. Maybe you've learned that where you really are happy is designing boats, not rowing them. So to some extent, just not going for it limits what you're going to find out about yourself. So the whole winning the race, I'm not actually a person to be super goal-oriented because if you're super, super goal-oriented, you tend to ignore all the other things that 
would have enriched your life, but you ignored them all because you were just looking at that goal. And I think you can layer a lot of self-hate on to trying to reach a goal. But I definitely think that having a direction and pursuing that direction, especially if it's one that comes from a sense of love and self-respect, is a direction where you will learn other things to love, other things about yourself. So just like donuts don't always make you fat, wanting to win a race doesn't always make you win a race. But it does give you a direction and it does make you learn stuff about yourself. And ultimately, that is why we're here. So she also has things about, oh, things like Pam Victor talked about, which is ask yourself around your decisions. Is this something I want to be? Is this something I want to do? Is this something I want to have? Is this a direction I want to go? And is it going to screw somebody else over? Because you're responsible for what you say and do, but not for what other people think or how they freak out. So don't hand over your power to other people. This is so hard, especially because the immediate comeback is, well, what about constructive criticism? What about constructive criticism? Is all criticism constructive? Because I'm going to say a solid hard no. What you have to do with criticism is ask it some questions. Will this help me better myself? And is this true? And with the answers to that, move on. So that's how you deal with constructive criticism. But the rest of it, under the umbrella of constructive criticism, we kind of shame people into accepting our garbage to lay on them or, or other people's garbage that they should just be under the weight of all this shame as though it's all constructive. And it's not. So then what are you doing here? What's your purpose? You have gifts and the whole point of a gift. It's not a gift unless you give it. Take some time and examine what your gifts are and how you can give them to others. Tap into the mother load is about your thoughts, starting to shift how you believe things, stop settling for mediocrity, and forgive, and forgive in a very specific sense. And that is forgive in order to get the awful thought of this out of your mind. Let go of your present story and create a new one that fits you because if you are focused on someone who hurt you, if you're focused on a situation that happened, it is very difficult to get out of that. Now, again, caveat, if you are ruminating on this, you may need some extra professional help. And I say this as someone who's done trauma therapy, which was so helpful. If you need that, if you have broken something, for God's sake, see a doctor. Nobody says not to do that. But There's all sorts of slights and things that come through the world. And if you're holding on to them, this version of the world, word forgiveness, it doesn't mean everything's over. Go back to where you were. Always bully me again. You, you can, you can ease people out of your life if they are not contributing to it or if they're in fact detracting from it. You absolutely can and should put up boundaries. And in your head, you should let that person I think in a way, forgiveness is really the wrong word because I don't think we have a good word for it. But let them get on with their lives. And and more than that, let that fictional ghost where you're replaying something, they're not even in the room. And when you're replaying it in your brain, this isn't a Jen Sincero thing. This is actually a how your emotions are made thing. You can replay a scene, an awful humiliating scene in your head, and your brain will release the stress chemicals and your body will react with the same inflammation as it did the first, the original time it happened. That is a place to learn to move on. Some things are truly bad, truly traumatic, and need 
professional help with working through, lots of other things do not. If you find yourself getting super mad at someone cutting you off in traffic and then you're talking about it for the next hour, you see, that's one you could you could definitely start learning to let go of. Decide that you'd rather be happy than right. Then how to get over your BS already. Talking about letting go of your present story, writing the new one that fits who you are, learning about procrastination. Now, she's a little tough about this, saying if you're serious about changing your life, you'll find a way. You won't find an excuse. Done is better than perfect, which I totally believe. And it's very, very difficult for those of us that ever, you know, went to school and start right now. She's not as kind as I would be. I would actually suggest if you're interested in procrastination to look at waitbutwhy.com. It's a blog by a guy named Tim Urban. When I read this, I actually got teary because I was so moved by it because it was so kind. When you procrastinate, it's an indication that something in you is fostering the same weight of fear, counterbalancing the thing you want to do. So I'm going to repeat that. Here's a thing you dearly want to do, but you can't get to it. That's an indication that somewhere unexamined is a fear that weighs the same or more to your brain than the thing you dearly want to do. And then she's also a little tough with fears for suckers, fears for habit. We're taught to play safe. All of this is true. And as I said, it's a fun and irreverent book. She does have a great example when a crab tries to climb out of the crab pail. The rest try to drag it back in instead of helping each other out. Look at who you're surrounded by. Are they always feeding into your fears? And if that's true, it's time to be mindful of that and stop agreeing with them. But they may not be able to help you out with your fear. You're going to have to walk that road by yourself or if your leg is broken, see a doctor. If that is debilitating, go see someone and get the help you need. But know that you don't have to live with it. It's not a condition that has to be permanent. It's not even the human condition. It's a human condition, but it doesn't have to be the human condition because we know people and I can find thousands and thousands of examples of people who don't or people who overcame it. And then know that no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. This is a very hard thing to hear. That's an Eleanor Roosevelt quote. So much of the way we're raised is about withholding of love if we don't please others. And even if you don't consider yourself a people pleaser, even if you consider yourself to be sort of a hard hitting truth telling, if there's stuff that you're stopped on, you may have pockets where you really are a people pleaser, or you may have certain directions where you are one. Maybe you're not one to peers. Maybe you're not one, not a super people pleaser to certain kinds of people. But maybe you are one to people who remind you of your mother. Or maybe you are that kind of person to people who remind you of your little brother who was always doing cool stuff or got famous or something like that. So it's just a question of being mindful of it and understanding that when you feel like someone has made you feel bad, that is definitely a signal that you are participating. And it's worth a thorough investigation. And then the last section is how to kick some ass. When we make a decision, it's our brain's narration. It's a narrative of identity. And losing that identity, especially because it's been around for a very long time, losing that identity is going to freak your brain out. And your brain does not like being freaked out. It wants to protect you, even if it protects you by making you miserable. The only failure is quitting when we feel uncomfortable with the decision that we made, it's not up for negotiation. A lot of times we don't make it to the things we wanted to do just because we got uncomfortable. And again, there's gradations to this. 
not desperately unhappy. That doesn't mean plow through with every decision, no matter how stupid it is. It does mean that just because it's a little uncomfortable doesn't mean we shouldn't try a little bit more. Weightlifting is uncomfortable, but weightlifting is really good for you. Does it mean you should tear your abdominal muscles? Of course not. Does it mean that you should go through some of the discomfort and see how it is on the other side before you start adjusting or quitting? Oh yeah, yeah, it totally does. Keep giving yourself pep talks. Know that other people have done this and that you are no different than other people. You're special. You're not that special. We're all still humans. And these human endeavors are things that are possible by humans. We'll learn. The whole point is to learn from it and getting there. Money is your new best friend. This is really interesting because the messages we hear about money are crazy, crazy. There's religious ones where they shorten it to money is the root of all evil. That is not the quote. The quote is the love of money is the root of all evil. And the assumptions, and they're very, very pervasive. People who say, you went into the arts, you learned to play guitar. Guess you wanted to be poor then, huh? You know, that that was your choice, that there was that there's never been a guitarist who made any money. Patently absurd. Then they kind of move to, well, of course there are, but they're not you. Well, that is definitely someone to start making boundaries about because frankly, how dare they? Just because someone is famous now means you just didn't see the years where they were struggling. That's all. That's all it means. Those years are now hidden. But money doesn't really mean anything. So making money isn't really only about the money and losing weight isn't only about the weight and finding a soulmate isn't really about the soulmate. It's about who you become, but it's really about what you think is possible for yourself. And People often hate seeing you do well, and they certainly hate seeing you make choices that they wish they had done. And so they kind of start shouting in right around here. And the reason I said money doesn't really matter is it does. It matters very, very much. It's it's real in the sense that our beliefs are real. We have agreed that money is necessary and has value, but there's no reason it can't be a collection of rocks like on the island of Yap. There's some societies, there's one I love, where wealth is measured not by what you possess, but by how much you give away, which is absolutely gorgeous. But some people have a ton of money, right? They were born to a ton of money and you can sit there and you go, well, I wasn't born to all that money, so I guess I'll never make it like they did. Yeah, but what about the people who were born into a ton of money and live on park benches? There are a fair amount of those too. The stories of people who were, you know, the children of the Carnegies or whatever and lost it all, those are far more numerous than the stories of the Carnegies to begin with. So just because you were born to it doesn't mean you keep it. And the opposites are true too. We can find all tons of rags to riches stories. People love them, right? That people who weren't born to money and made it. So there's tons of people on both sides. So none of those really, really tell you a story, but your belief is what tells you a story. So wanting to make money versus having specific goals, those are two different things. And money has the value that we agree about it. And it's important because you need to be able to feed and house and clothe yourself. And it's got a lot of pain attached to it. But unpack it. Take some time. Take a journal. Unpack your relationship with money. Write it a letter. That's a really cute idea. She doesn't have that, but I do. Just try to figure out what your relationship is with money. Anyway, do you believe that in order to be loved, you can't be successful, that all your friends would turn on you, that you wouldn't be authentic anymore? Do you believe that rich people are all bad and you don't want to be a bad person? 
And do you believe that rich means rich? Or is it possible to just be comfortable enough to be free? What does that mean? So there's all sorts of questions and nobody can answer these questions but you. But if you never look at them, you won't answer them. Doing versus spewing. Once it moves, once your belief and your faith starts moving from your brain and your intention to your actual bones, to where you're like ready to do stuff, it's up to you to move through it. Move forward or shrink and look at obstacles knowing that you can get past them instead of avoiding them. And then she ends with a lovely moment of just, you know what, you are powerful, which you are. It's what we all have is a certain amount of power. If nothing else, we have the power of our own energy. You are loved. You are surrounded by miracles. And this is absolutely true. This is absolutely true. Every flower, every sunrise, we are surrounded by miracles. So believe and love yourself. You are a badass. That's how her book ends. It's really quite sweet. And she's the first to say that nothing she said was brand new, but all of it was a fun way to get people to to see themselves and to get them to care for themselves better. It's lovely. All right, so this is my tab review. I have my book on a tab. Yay, my book is done. I've got to read it. I've given myself a week. I'm going to spend this weekend rereading it because you can never really edit. Well, you can. It's difficult. Let me put it that way. It's difficult to edit something that you wrote. Mostly, I just want to read it before I give it to other people to read because I think there are some places where when I sort of put it all together to make sense, I left gaps. <laughs> so I just want to read it before I hand it off to the first people to read it and see whether it makes any sense. I have the Happier Valley website up because I'm actually going to go back to the US. I'm in Italy right now, but I'm going to go back to the US and I'm going to take a class there. I'm really looking forward to it. I have a friend's bios open, which was a great collaborative thing to do. Help somebody talk good things about themselves and say good things about themselves. And I would suggest that if you are ever a person who needs to write a biography, give that assignment to somebody else because it's so much easier to correct what they wrote than to sit there and try to write it yourself for most people. For some people, they can endlessly, you know, we can name a bunch and some famous ones that can endlessly talk about how great they are at stuff. But for most of us, we're sort of humble and good people are kind of self-deprecating, maybe too much. So if you have to do that, give it to somebody else. I have a big bunch of tabs up about freelancing, as I often do. I have this one yoga video that I've had up for four days, but I have to actually do it, which is yoga poses that feel like a massage. I've really tried to commit to myself to doing yoga every day, and I've mostly done it. I got sick immediately after making that promise to myself, and then I found there was somebody who had yoga for sick days, and it's lovely and yummy, so I've been I've been pretty good about that. And then I have a lot of stuff about management, how to do feedback, like whether, I don't know if you've ever heard of the colloquially, it's called the shit sandwich, where you say something nice, say something to improve or something critical and say something nice again. And they're suggesting, much like Victoria does, regular feedback is of limited use. It tends to just be criticism and make people feel like crap. There's a way instead to talk about the goals and the agreed goals and the agreed direction and let people actually learn. People know they did something wrong, usually, unless we're talking micromanaging and just saying, well, you did it right. You got everything done. You just didn't do it how I would have done it. And that's a that's a manager issue, not an employee issue. Anyway, so that's in that's in Harvard Business Review, the feedback fallacy. It's from oh, it's from this month. It's terrific. 
Work Human has a thing on RIP, the annual performance review. And this is really great because the annual performance review is garbage. It's a huge amount of work at one time of the year for one department, which is HR. And while it sort of justifies a lot of work there, it also makes it so that it's an uneven workflow. And it's not helpful once a year. Are you kidding me? So two things happen with the once a year. The first, well, three, because I just said one of them, but two other bad things happen. The first is that if that's all you're hearing about your performance, 365 days go by before you get to hear like whether you were doing things satisfactorily, that's shocking neglect. If you want people to learn and if learning is the point of an organization and if doing better and and getting to whatever the agreed upon goals of the business are, you better be giving them education and learning and letting them learn all the time. And that is the review, constant review. The great example here is if the coach just sat on the sidelines all season long and then gave them feedback at the last game or just before the last game, it's too late to make any difference. So that's the first thing. The other problem with annual feedback is that it saves up all your sins to make you look bad on that last day. If you had something in your early training at the beginning of the year when you were brand new and it took you some time to learn it and it gets into, you know, your manager's report on how you didn't do this well, to hear about that when you've spent 10 months doing it perfectly is pretty demoralizing. So uh, RIP indeed. I hope it doesn't rest in peace. I hope it goes straight to hell because it's hell to live through. There's another one from Work Human as well. 93% of managers need training on coaching employees, which I believe. Balance careers, secrets to developing trusting relationships in the workplace, which is really interesting having just had a podcast with a improv professional and a circus professional. What else do I have? I have uh, something from McKinsey about leadership, Forbes, and I have that Gallup information about how miserable workers are. And then I just learned how to upload videos to Facebook and to make captions and then to save those captions so I can upload them elsewhere. So that's been pretty fun. I've spent a lot of time doing that. And that's my tabs, which I have to say is shockingly few for me. Well, that brings me to the end of my broadcasting day today. Thank you all very much for listening. And I hope you stay well. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter, at 9 to Thrive, and Facebook, at Working 9 to Thrive. Thanks for listening. <laughs>